0: Welcome to another episode of the Contours podcast. My name is Minna joffrey Lindemolder, and I am the content manager here at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. Today, I'm joined by Eugene Chasovsky, an expert on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, as well as a senior analyst here at the Institute. Eugene, I wanted to talk to you about the recent moves by Russia in terms of its escalation and its increased aggression towards Ukraine, including annexing Donetsk and Luhansk. Can you talk to me about what Putin's endgame is here? What is he trying to achieve in this conflict?
1: Sure, thanks, Mina. Well, I think that you know, despite the setbacks that Russia has faced in recent weeks in terms of Ukraine's counteroffensives and some of the military gains, I think the endgame for Putin and for Russia is still largely the same as it was at the start of the conflict almost eight months ago now. And that was really about, you know, what Putin claimed as the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. Now, those are obviously, you know, subject to different interpretations. But I think ultimately Putin's goal is to degrade Ukraine's military capabilities, place the government of Ukraine. And that doesn't seem very likely at this point, at least to force Ukraine to become neutral and give up its NATO ambitions and if possible, to try to extract some kind of security guarantees from the US and NATO over the future security architecture of Europe.
0: Thank you for elaborating on that. Can we talk about Ukraine's role in this conflict? What do you think Zelensky is trying to achieve? And has that shifted from the beginning of this conflict?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, Zelensky's objectives are to resist the Russian invasion militarily. That means to prevent Russia from gaining more territory and to try to regain the territory that has been seized by Russia up to this point. And that is something that has actually shifted in recent weeks. As I mentioned, Ukraine has had some very successful and rapid counteroffensives in certain parts of the country, in the east and in the south. And they're certainly hoping to keep up the momentum in terms of regaining Essentially all of the territories that they've lost to Russia, not only from February, but also going back to twenty fourteen in terms of Crimea and, and Donbass. But in terms of broader objectives, you know, securing Western military support, whether that's weapons or logistics, remains crucial for Ukraine. And really they're just trying to obtain security guarantees from the West and the US especially in terms of any kind of potential agreement with Russia. But for now the objectives are largely military. And focused on regaining the territory.
0: Let's talk a little bit about regaining that territory and how this might happen. Russia has come out recently in saying that they could potentially use nuclear weapons in order to secure what they believe is rightfully their territory. Let's talk through what this might look like, both in terms of nuclear aggression, but also more conventional weapons attacks and any potential new theaters of conflict.
1: Right. So this is something that you rightly point out is a very important recent development in the conflict. I mean, Russia has had some threats of nuclear weapons before, but it really started to tick up um, following their territorial losses, you know, at the hands of Ukraine more recently. So this is a key scenario looking forward as what can such a military escalation of the conflict look like? And I think that there is a number of things to watch out for here. So, you know, there have been some rumblings, some rhetoric about the nuclear weapons, but we would have to be looking out for perhaps some kinds of build-up and movement of Russian forces and weaponry in or near Ukrainian territory, weapons tests. This is something that U.S. officials have come out recently and said that they have not seen evidence, despite some reports of movement or uh, tests at this stage of nuclear weapons but also looking at more conventional scaling up of uh, Russian buildups as well, whether that's, you know, in or near Ukraine, but even potentially beyond Ukraine in terms of opening up another theater of the conflict.
0: Do we have any idea about what another theater of conflict could potentially be?
1: So there is a number of different places that Russia could at least Theoretically scale up or, you know, expand its conflict. One country that's been floated over the course of this war is Moldova. It's right on the doorstep of Ukraine and it's in a similar position in terms of having a pro Western government and even a breakaway territory supported by Russia in terms of Transnistria that Russia could try to essentially reclaim more territory. There's also been some rumblings in, in terms of Central Asia. Kazakhstan has been a country that has a long border with Russia. And even though technically Kazakhstan is an ally of Russia, they've been very hesitant and very sort of circumspect on supporting Russian moves in Ukraine. But I wouldn't even limit it just to the former Soviet sphere. I mean, Russia has military assets in theaters like the Middle East, and even in Latin America as well, that it could try to basically expand or at least as a diversionary tactic. So Russia is under a lot of constraints as it is when it comes to Ukraine and you know its operations there. That's not to say that it's impossible that they try to, you know, open up a new front if they really feel like it's necessary.
0: And let's talk about some of the implications of these escalations whether it be military in terms of a nuclear attack or a conventional attack. How do you think the rest of the world, particularly the US and its allies would react to an escalation like that?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think in terms of the implications, if this scenario were to play out in terms of a military escalation, there is a potential for a broader military conflict and even direct NATO involvement. Russia has said itself that because of the annexation of the Ukrainian territories that only it recognizes, but it's important in the sense that it now considers you know, any attacks against those territories as aggression against Russia itself. So there is a potential for direct clashes. This would also precipitate, I think, a much larger global economic fallout if we were to see, you know, this kind of military escalation. And there would be humanitarian costs as well. As bad as things have been in the conflict so far, I I think we could imagine a much larger placement of people, of, of refugees in Europe and even perhaps beyond. So. This is something that the U.S. and its NATO allies is clearly trying to prevent in terms of that kind of broader military escalation. But at the same time, they have an interest in continuing to support Ukraine so that it can reclaim some of these territories. So it's a it's rather a delicate balance to achieve.
0: Thank you for elaborating on that, Eugene. When we talk about the fallout that could occur not only within Europe, but also beyond Europe and beyond the former Soviet states, I think one of the things that we need to consider very seriously is the upcoming energy crisis that has been precipitated by this conflict. Is Russia considering, in your view, any potential economic escalatory moves?
1: Yes, absolutely. Compared to the the scenario for military escalation, I think an economic escalation should be taken very seriously and perhaps is even more likely as it, there are fewer constraints especially when you're talking about things like, you know, using nuclear weapons. So, Russia has already signaled and even implemented some economic restrictions. We've seen selective energy cutoffs to specific European countries. We've also seen some sabotage against infrastructure. Most notably, there's been some damage done to both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines, which are key natural gas transit corridor uh, from Russia to Europe. It's not clear exactly who was responsible, although there are many indications and claims from the West that Russia had a hand in it. And really, you know, there can be things like cyber attacks against critical infrastructure as well. So these are the things that we should be watching out for. And I think in terms of what would drive this, beyond the military realm, one of the key objectives for Putin is to undermine Western unity. And so I think the thinking there goes that the more economic pressure that Europe faces, especially as we enter winter months, maybe they would relax some of their support for Ukraine and push Kiev towards a diplomatic settlement. This would also avert the risk of major military escalation. But it does still have some very important implications as well. Obviously, a global economic fallout. But again, it would, in this scenario, would prevent, you know, all of the risks of a really significant military escalation.
0: So we've talked a lot about the drivers of potential other avenues of conflict or escalating this conflict further. Let's talk about the ways that this conflict could be de-escalated a little bit. Can you talk to me both about how that would be possible militarily as well as economically?
1: Sure. So I think right now it's difficult to see a path of de-escalation, especially given the recent developments that we've seen, not only in terms of Russia's annexation of the Ukrainian region's And then the threats that we've already discussed about nuclear attacks, but also Russia's broader military mobilization, which has been taking place. So that certainly suggests that Russia is preparing for a larger conflict. But I do think that de-escalation or whether that comes in terms of a ceasefire agreement, some form of security guarantees or even a broader peace agreement, it can't be ruled out completely, even if it's not likely in the near term. So I think some of the drivers towards that kind of scenario would be, first and foremost, if Russia or Ukraine or both become militarily exhausted. This is usually something that precedes a diplomatic settlement, because right now, I think both uh, Russia and Ukraine are trying to accomplish their objectives on the battlefield and still feel like it's possible to basically redraw those borders militarily. But, you know, whether they become exhausted out of escalated attacks or just the sheer duration of the conflict, that would be something that could point to that de-escalation phase. Another thing to consider here is that the Putin administration does have a constraint internally of domestic political opposition to the war, whether that be a lot of men fleeing Russia because of the mobilization or some, although be it small levels of, of opposition within the government to Putin's plans, So this is something that we certainly need to keep an eye out. And then also there's an important component here to mention which is that diplomacy has been active in the conflict even as it has unfolded militarily. And I think one of those uh, key examples of that is the Black Sea Grain Initiative which was an agreement that included Russia and Ukraine. It was mediated by Turkey and the UN in order to unlock food supplies amid a global food shortage. So we've seen that agreement now in place for over two months and it has really been to the benefit I would argue of all sides for Ukraine because it was able to unlock its exports. For Russia, it eased some of the sanctions related to food and then for you know developing regions, whether in Africa and the Middle East that were facing food shortages that now have access to those supplies. So that at least shows that some kind of agreement even if it's not a full scale peace agreement is possible.
0: Thank you so much for bringing up the grain agreement, Eugene. I do think that's a very important point to realize, is that though the conflict is having widespread effects, it is still possible for small-scale diplomacy efforts to make a very real impact in the global grain market. Are there any other avenues in which you could see an agreement like this having a real lasting effect?
1: Yes, so I know that Turkey, which has been one of the main mediators of this agreement, has expressed an interest in leveraging this type of agreement to a broader ceasefire. Now, because of the reasons that we've already discussed before, I think that still is unlikely in the short term. But perhaps if there can be more small scale efforts, that can eventually be leveraged into that such a ceasefire agreement. So Even Ukrainian officials have mentioned that this type of grain agreement could serve as the basis for unlocking other goods which are blocked as a result of the conflict, including metals. There has been also some discussion of an energy corridor, you know, similar to the humanitarian corridor that's been set up for the grain supply. So these are all, you know, tactical issues, but I think that's really where there's room for progress there. And that's really been one of those areas where, a lot of officials from all sides have spoken to the the effectiveness of this agreement because it had a very clear purpose that was agreed to between all sides, and that's something that's been lacking for the Ukraine conflict. I would argue going back to all the way to 2014, you know, the Minsk agreements that were previously the basis of a settlement. There was never a comprehensive or a mutually agreed upon interpretation of what those agreements actually meant in terms of sequencing, in terms of the results. The grain agreement shows that if you can kind of get more specific and in a way that's mutually beneficial and doesn't come at the direct expense of anybody, that's where there is actually room for progress. So I would look at those kind of tactical issues, whether that's economic or humanitarian, as perhaps serving as the basis for a broader ceasefire when both parties are ready to come to that point.
0: Switching gears a little bit, what would a de-escalation of this conflict look like in terms of great power competition? How would this affect China's role in the world as well as Russia's relationships with China and the implications that that would have on US foreign policy overall?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question and it points to the fact that this conflict while it's, you know, directly concerning Ukraine and Russia, really has ripple effects that go far beyond the region. So you mentioned that China, which has served as an important backer or at least a neutral country when it comes to Russia, it's continued to support Russia economically. It's increased its purchases of Russian energy. This has essentially allowed Russia to continue this conflict. It's it's one of the key factors there. But if there were some kind of, uh, of an agreement or at least an understanding reached between Russia and the West, not only would there be a partial stabilization of the you know the long standing standoff between Moscow and the West, but it could also potentially drive Russia away from cooperation or alignment with China, which would be a very important situation for, for the West when really China is the big power that the U.S. is most interested in competing with. And also we would see an improvement, at least temporarily, of, of the global economic and security situation which is currently in a very precarious state. So I would look towards increased diplomatic engagement and mediation efforts by states like Turkey, or even potentially political changes in either Russia or the West as drivers towards this kind of scenario.
0: And what would some of those political changes, particularly in Russia, look like?
1: Well, obviously the West is trying to create a situation where, The decision-making of Russia, here I'm talking specifically about Putin, is changed when it comes to the conflict. And if that's not possible, which certainly in this case looks very unlikely, you know, to change the regime itself. Now, there's a lot of constraints to that approach. Despite Putin being under pressure, I would argue that he still has key backers of the Security Council supporting him or at least not actively going against him. But I think that is one of the elements that the West is trying to instill. And by the way, Russia is trying to do the same thing in terms of creating political change within the West or within within Europe. And that's what you know, doing things like an energy cutoff or creating economic pressure. Russia is hoping that there will be some, if not pro-Russian, I think that's unrealistic at this point. But some countries that could be more moderate and less supportive of Ukraine. So essentially, they're just trying to shift the behavior, if not the the governments themselves, in order to be an advantageous position for both Russia and
0: the West. Thank you so much for that, Eugene. Lastly, do you think that there are any moves that the United States and its Western allies could take at a time like this to move this conflict after almost eight months closer towards de-escalation as opposed to the moves that Putin has hinted at?
1: Well, I think that all of the scenarios that we've discussed, whether that's the military escalation or the economic escalation or this kind of more diplomatic de-escalation path, they're all interrelated. And I think that the U.S. does have a lot of tools at its disposal in order to move to the de-escalation path. Obviously, the objective is still for the U.S. to support Ukraine and for to help Ukraine regain territory and be you know, a critical ally within the European security order. And it's done this through both military and economic means. But the more that it escalates, you know, as we've discussed whether that's militarily or economically, there are risks associated with those escalations that could be very painful, not only for the US, but also for the world at large. So I would argue that balancing these tools, the military and the economic tools, in order to get to a de-escalation path, to get Russia to the table, Ukraine to the table, to find the best possible agreement, which is never going to be perfect, but one that can avoid major military and economic pain, and hopefully pave the pathway for a more stable security architecture in Europe and around the world.
0: Thank you so much for all of your valuable insights on this all-important topic that has only increased in severity over the course of these past eight months. Thank you, Minna. Please be sure to subscribe to Contours on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, so you don't miss our recent podcast. And please be sure to check out our analysis into geopolitics at newlinesinstitute.org. This has been the Contours Podcast.